Well, amen and good morning. Uh, my name is Chris Watson. I'm one of the pastors here. So if you're looking up here and go, you're not Chad or Drew. Yeah, I know. Um, so my, I've been here for a little over a year. I've had the pleasure of worshiping alongside of you uh, in that time, myself and my wife Amy, and we've got six kids, so it's a crazy household and we have a lot of fun. And I've gotten the opportunity to uh, lead the team at Horizon alongside of Chad and the elders, and it's just been a great time so far. And I, I love that song that we just sang as we ended of praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. All of creation praises God. And so we get to celebrate those words together today. We're going to see this picture of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, as we look at the baptism of Jesus Christ here in Matthew. And throughout our series, we've been looking at how Matthew lays out the course for this Messiah that is to come and that we're going to recognize today. And as he lays out the course for the Messiah, you know, Jesus didn't just come to fulfill one of the passages that Micah said about him. He didn't come only to fulfill one of the things about Isaiah that Isaiah said or one of the things from Jeremiah. He didn't only come to fulfill that he would be of the house and the line of David, that he would be the forever king that was promised to David. And he didn't only fulfill that he would be you know, the new and greater Moses that would lead the people not just out of bondage to a people like what they saw going through the Red Sea away from the Egyptians, that he wouldn't just lead them out of their bondage of what they were currently experiencing with the Romans, but that he would lead them out of the bondage that they were experiencing in here. The ways that we don't measure up to God's perfect standard. And that when John the Baptist calls for repentance from sin, he's going to step into that place for us. So we see this beautiful declaration in, in the, as our passage ends in verse 17 of Matthew 3. And here's what it says. Suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. We're going to look today at the question, what does it take to please God? That's a big question full of tons of theological argument that has happened really since the beginning of time. Where people would say, well, that depends on which God you're talking about. I serve this God, you serve that God. But we'll truly see through the life of Jesus, what does it mean to please the God of the Bible, the God of the universe, the creator of it all? And I know that's a tough question. What does it take to please God? So I thought it would be easier to kind of unpack it in, what does it take to please our parents? Because we, we talk about God as our father, so what does it take to please our parents? What did it take to please our parents? 
or if you got little ones at home like I do, what does it take for them to please you? And when I think about that, a whole host of things come into my head. I, I could make a laundry list, but, you know, just trying to dial it back a little bit, um, if you've got kids that are school age, you know, what did it take to please your parents back then? Probably getting good grades, doing the best that you can in school, doing the best of your abilities. Uh, staying out of the principal's office would be one. Now, we homeschool, so I happen to be the principal. So when I come home and it's like, oh, man, you got three kids waiting for you in line. Have fun. As they get older, we want them to have a good, solid job, one that they're passionate about, one that they love. And we want that, hopefully, that job to eventually take them off of payroll mom and dad and being able to take care of themselves, to be able to support themselves financially. Amy and I, you know, we've got our oldest is 12, Peyton, and our youngest is about 16 months, Micah. She's going to correct me after this service is over and say, no, he's 18 months. But anyway, um, when we talk about what does it take to please us or what would we hope for from our kids when they grow up, we often come back to, well, when they leave the house, we want them to willingly want to come back. Not because we're, if they come back, then we'll hand them a check for their mortgage that month, or not because, hey, the, the fridge is looking kind of lean, or I need some laundry done, let's go back to mom and dad. But that they want to spend time with us, that we've built that relationship over time that's really developed into where they enjoy spending time with us. And I think when we look at all of those things boiling down together, I think it's kind of two things. What does it take to please mom and dad? What does it take to please God? I think one is to spend time. And the next is obedience or doing the best that you can. And so we're going to see that in the picture today. And Jesus says that, what fills him up, his food, his sustenance, the thing that fills him up is to do the will of the one who sent him. And so today we're going to look at what does it mean to please an audience of one. We've got all these different voices in our head trying to tell us what we should do, what we should say, all of those things. What does it mean to serve an audience of one. And so to deal with our passage in Matthew, I think it's important to recognize that there's a very significant gap from the last time we saw Matthew or Jesus in the book of Matthew. He has escaped Egypt, he's back in Nazareth. And scholars' best guess is that he's somewhere between the ages of six and ten years old. But we know that in our passage today, when Jesus begins his ministry, he's about 30 years old. So there's a 20-year gap at least in the life of Jesus as what Matthew is pointing out here. So I like to ask questions. So what was going on in Jesus' life as he was growing up? What are the things that built into him to allow him to be the person that he was when he starts his ministry. And in order to do that, 
Luke gives us really the only additional picture of this in Luke chapter 2. You see, in Luke chapter 2, he's going to give us this picture of the boy Jesus, 12 years old. And he's been growing up. He's been spending time with his family. He's been maturing. He's probably been in what we would consider elementary school. And what they would do in their version of elementary school is they would study the Torah. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. You know, the stuff we often skip over to get to the New Testament because there's some meat in those bones. And so as we, as we look at his life, they would not just be studying that, but they would be memorizing that. In fact, by the time they got out of our version of elementary school, they actually would have memorized all of the Torah, even the chronological lists. That's pretty impressive. And if they were really, really smart, like the head of the class, they'd go on. But if not, they'd go and learn the trade of their parents. And so Jesus is at this culminating point in his life where would he go on to the next step? Would he go to learn the trade? And Luke 2 gives us this picture. You see, he's gone to... Jerusalem. And as he goes to Jerusalem, he's going to celebrate Passover. And when he goes to celebrate Passover, really the whole of Nazareth is going. They're going together. They're going to spend about a week there to celebrate Passover together. And then they'll pack up and start to head home. And as they start to head home, you know, everybody packs up and they start their journey they get about a day out, Mary and Joseph and the rest of the crew get about a day's journey out of Jerusalem. And Mary and Joseph start going, hey, have you seen Jesus? I thought he was with you. Oh, I bet he's with his friends over here. And they go over and they, have you seen Jesus? No. And being the father of a 12-year-old, I can imagine how nervous and freaked out they would have been we're a day away from our son. So they hurry back to Jerusalem and they search for three days all over Jerusalem to try and find him. Eventually they find him. And he's sitting with the religious leaders in the temple. He's learning from them. He's asking them questions. He's trying to digest as much information as he can. And his parents go, son, what have you done to us? Like, we've been worried sick about you. And he says, didn't you know I'd be about my father's business? I'd be gaining that knowledge and understanding of who God is. And this passage culminates in, in this verse, chapter, uh, verse 52 where it says this. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. Jesus is picking up little tidbits of who God is, what he wants for him, what are the things that he's paved out through all of the Old Testament scripture about what he would want Jesus to do and who his character is. 
He's been learning. He's been growing and gaining God's favor. Luke would continue to give us a picture as Jesus grows up and is in his ministry full time after this event that we're going to talk about with his baptism. In Luke chapter 5, he says, So he himself often withdrew into the wilderness and prayed. He pulled aside from the busyness of life to just spend time with God. In chapter 6, he's, he's coming up on a really difficult decision. He's got to decide which of his disciples would also be apostles, the ones that would carry forth his good news. And in the middle of that decision, it says, now it came to pass in those days that he went to the mountain to pray and continued all night in prayer. And then in the garden, as he's about to be arrested and tried and beaten and taken to the cross, it says, coming out, he went to the Mount of Olives as he was accustomed and his disciples followed him. See, Jesus often pulled aside to spend time with God, to learn what it was that God would have for him to do, and he did it. And so the first thing we're going to see from this passage is to spend time with God to learn his will. The more I get to know him, who he is, what he wants for me, I'll know what he wants for me to do. And that's where we're going to pick up in Matthew chapter 3 at this picture that we saw last week of John baptizing in the Jordan. So verse 13 says this, Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. This is the picture of the Jordan River that you would see. And I want you to think about this scene, but it's not quite so serene as what this picture would look like. You see, because we learned last week that John had gone into all Jerusalem and Judea and the surrounding areas and had called them to repent, to make themselves right with God by confessing their sins. And it says that all of this area goes out to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. So when I think about this, I think of this picture of John in the waters, and probably the longest line you have ever seen in your life, standing there waiting to get in the water. And at the end of that line would probably be a couple of his disciples. Probably Andrew, Philip, some of those guys. And as you approach the line, they go, okay, so he's called you to repentance. He said, hey, repent, so confess the things that you've done wrong that don't meet God's standard. So what are the things that, that you want to confess? And he goes, well, they would probably look something like, uh, I cheated on my taxes. I didn't keep my Sabbath. I lied to my spouse. I've not been a good example for my kids. I've taken the Lord's name in vain. Okay, that's quite enough, sir. Yeah, go ahead and get in that line. 
and the next, and the next person would step into that line. And then Jesus would step in that line. And I can imagine Philip and Andrew, or whoever were, might have been standing at the end of that line, well, sir, what is it that you need to repent of? Well, actually, nothing. Now, sir, there, there's got to be something, some way that you haven't met God's standard. There's actually not, but I need to do this. I need to see John. Sir, this, is, this line is for baptism of repentance. I understand. Just let me see John. And when I, when I picture this scene, I think of something that was happening uh, actually about 120 miles south of here in a place called Wilmore, Kentucky at this exact time last year. Um, and it was at this place called Asbury University where they were in a service much like what we're in right now but for students. And it was a regular service. The guy that was speaking said, I didn't think I did a good job. In fact, I was getting ready to call home and say, honey, I bombed. And it was at the end of that service that a couple students stepped forward. And they said, I need to make my heart right with God and with some of my friends. I know there's something that's kind of restricting our relationship. I need to ask for forgiveness. So they did that off to the side, and the worship band continued to play. And something just happened where people might have heard the music that was going on and came back inside. And at that point, from that point on, for the next 16 days, that service continued. And it caught wind, not just on the campus, but in Kentucky and surrounding states, so much so that people were coming from Australia and Africa because they heard what was going on in this small little community and they just wanted to see how God was moving. And that's the picture that Jesus steps into here in this moment. And so as I look at this, I, I think, why would Jesus step into this place? He had nothing to confess. What was it that would have him step into this place? Verse 14 starts to paint that picture for us. It says, And John tried to prevent him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. And are you coming to me? But Jesus answered him and said, Permit it to be so now, for thus it is fitting to fulfill all righteousness. Then he allowed him. So what's Jesus doing stepping into this picture? Well, if it's not to confess sin, some would say it was to, to give John an attaboy. You're doing a good job. What he's doing right here is right. And they would also say that it was just an obedience to his father. You know, as he's learning who God is and his will for him, at some point, God taps him on the shoulder and says, go. It's time. You need to go. And ultimately, what Jesus is doing by stepping into the waters is he says, no, I don't have any sin, but I live this life just like you, with temptation and difficulties 
I mean, we, would, we believe by 30 that his dad is no longer around anymore, that Joseph is gone. And he's experienced all that you and I experience in life. And he comes alongside us and says, hey, I've done it. I understand, and I'm here to make it all right. When I think about this, I think about the last time I went to play golf. As you can imagine, with six kids, it's not often that I get out on the golf course. And when I do, I like to play in scrambles, which means best ball, right? It's not always my shot that counts. So if I've got somebody else that hits a better shot, I get to step up to his shot, not mine, and take it. And we were playing in the scramble for Partners for Belize that John runs for the missions trip that they just got back from. And I didn't know all the guys in my group's talent level with golf, so I kind of just mixed and matched them. We had eight guys that wanted to play. And as I was sitting in the cart with one of my buddies as we were getting ready to get out, he goes, hey, you know, do you get out much to play? I go, well, you're looking at it. This is kind of my one time a year that I get out and play. You'll see that in a second when I go to swing. And uh, he goes, and I asked him the same question. He goes, well, I don't get out as much as I used to. Oh, really? How, how much do you typically get out? He said, well, I used to be a golf pro at a club in Dublin, Ohio. So not that much, but, you know, I, I can do it. And so I'm like, okay, great. So we've got a ringer here. And so I'm like, I'll take the first shot, guys. It's okay. I'll make us all feel stupid, and then we can go on from there. So I step up to the tee, and I, I go to take my shot, and I come back. And it looks really good for about 150 yards. And then the patented Watson slice comes in and it kicks all the way to the right. Next guy comes up and he swings. He hasn't played in a while and hits it in the dirt about 15 feet in front of us. The next guy comes up and hits a pretty good shot, but it goes off to the left and it kind of lands in the rough. We're like, we can't take a mulligan on the first hole. Like, that's not going to be good. So my buddy go, comes, steps up, and he goes, it's okay, guys. I got it. Don't worry about it. We don't need to take an extra shot. And he comes up, and he swings and puts it right down the middle. That's what I think of that Jesus is doing as he steps into the waters of baptism for us. He says, I know you're not going to hit it perfect every time. I know you're not going to hit it straight every time but I did, and you can play my ball. The second thing we're going to learn from this passage is to apprentice under Jesus to learn his way. You know, it's not enough to mentor under him. I, I, I have a number of mentors in my life, and, and usually when, I, when I'm approaching my mentor, it's, hey, I've got a little time on my calendar, and so I'll pick up the phone and I'll I'll pass an idea by him or I'll pass a thought by him. What, what would you do in this situation? What do you think? But it's not enough to mentor, be a mentee of Jesus. No, we need to apprentice under Jesus, which means to walk where he walked, to go where he goes. When he says, climb that ladder up and you're afraid of heights, you do it anyway because you're his apprentice. And so we're going to see what it looks like to apprentice under Jesus to learn his way. Verse 16, uh, one of the ways that we can do that, oops, uh, one of the ways that we can do that is 
by stepping into the waters of baptism, just like he did. Uh, we've got a few opportunities that will come up at the beginning of the spring. I know spring is around the corner. I can't believe it with the way the weather looks today, but it is around the corner, and we'll have a few opportunities to be baptized. And if you're thinking, I don't know what that means. I've never done that before. What does that look like? We've got an opportunity to explore baptism together. There's uh, next week, John will be kind of sitting down with people and just hearing their story. What, what does your story look like walking, after Je- walking with Jesus? Ask questions. Get to know what does it look like to be baptized. And it's a different baptism than what we see Jesus step into. Actually, Paul will give us a beautiful picture of what believer's baptism looks like. If we truly believe and trust in Jesus, well, then what is that baptism that we might do out there in the water? And so in Romans, he actually says this. Do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death. That means the old self, the the stuff that I've done in the past, the stuff that I will do that doesn't meet God's standard, that stuff Jesus actually paid for on the cross. He took that on himself. And so we're buried with Jesus in his death. And just as Christ was raised from the dead to the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. And we see that picture that I'm no longer the person that I used to be, but I now get to walk as Jesus walked. I get to do the things as Jesus did them. And I get to follow his lead like a good apprentice. And so as we look at this, well, what, what does that look like? What, what does it mean to walk in the ways of Jesus. We're going to pick up verse 16 when it says, and when he had been baptized, so following him in that, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were open to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. You know, as we look at the dove, what does that mean to descend like a dove? Well, uh, the dove was often a picture of the Spirit of God throughout Scripture. And the way that a dove moved to hover as it flies. We see that pictured in the account of creation in Genesis 1. Where it says that the Spirit of God hovered over the waters of the deep as God was creating and making a creation, the experience, what we see today in the world. And then in Genesis 6 and 8, in the historical account of the flood, we see the dove move in that very same way. As God has destroyed the world because of all that has taken his perfect creation and made it to be, how they've muddied it up, And yet he has decided, I'm going to start fresh and new with a family named Noah. So he he creates this flood that sweeps everything off the earth except 
what is in the boat that Noah has built. And as they begin to hit some kind of ground and the boat rests, Noah sends out a dove to hover over the waters to see if it's okay to come out of the boat, to see if that new creation has been formed. And the first time he sends it out, it comes back. He sends it out several days later, and it comes back with an olive branch, a sign of peace. Then one more time, he sends it out, and it doesn't come back because that new creation that Noah and his family get to step out into is already there. There's a place for them to land their feet in the new creation. We also see the dove as a sign of sin offering, of atonement, that if you didn't have enough money to pay for a perfect lamb, there would be a sin offering of doves, turtle doves, to pay for your sins. And we see the Spirit of God come on that perfect sin offering that was to be in the person of Jesus. He's not done fulfilling, though, because in Isaiah 11, we see this picture of Jesus prophesied by Isaiah, and we see a lot of familiar pictures that we've picked up throughout Matthew. In 11, 1 and 2, it said, There shall come from the rod and the stem of Jesse, that, that father to David, that picture of that forever king that is to come. And a branch shall grow out of his roots. The branch from Branchville, Nazareth. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and might. The spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. God is using the Holy Spirit to impart more wisdom more understanding for the days ahead that were to come for Jesus. Challenging days, as we'll see next week, where he's going to be tempted and tried, and he's got to figure out who is he going to serve. And then verse 17, we see this picture again, this beautiful declaration from God where he says, and suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. All that he is doing is fulfilling what I've asked him to do. He's well pleased because Jesus is walking exactly in what God has for him. And we see this picture from Psalms of David who says, I will declare the decree the Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Again, this picture of the house and the line of David. You are my son. This is my son. And Isaiah 42 says, here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. That's great for Jesus. He's the son of God. What does that look like for us? 
today, in 2024, to truly apprentice under Jesus. You know, we used to have those bracelets that would say, WWJD, what would Jesus do? That's a good question. But I think there's a deeper question that I I heard a guy named John Mark Comer say uh, the other day, and he says, what would Jesus do if he were me? Because I'm not living as a first century carpenter and rabbi. I'm living as the head of a company trying to make decisions on how would Jesus make this decision? How, who would he hire here? What direction would he go here? As a mom who stays home with their kids, what are the things that Jesus would focus on at this moment in time? How would I raise my kids to know God better and understand who he is? As a retiree, how do I continue to walk out my journey with him, knowing him more, but not just knowing, but to walk in his will for my life. So as we look at this picture of Jesus and how he lives and steps in to associate with us, I want us to remember there's so many people that want to speak into your life that want to say, you can't say that, you shouldn't do that. But when we know who God is, We can look to him, find his ways, and serve an audience of one. Let's pray. God, I I, want to know you more. Uh, I don't know that I have the best picture of who you are, but I want to willingly spend time with you to get to know who you are and what you would have for me. So much of my life is spent trying to figure out what I'm supposed to do. Lord, I see through this picture that you are wisdom, knowledge, understanding, and counsel, and you give us the Holy Spirit to do that as well. Lord, I pray that as I live out my life and as we live out our lives together as the Horizon community that we would live a life in which you would say, I am well pleased. Thank you for giving us your son Jesus to show us how we should walk. In his name we pray. Amen.